You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Although I was born here in Birmingham in Caraway Methodist Hospital, I was reared in western Kansas. Uh, That's why there isn't a trace of a southern accent in my voice, although I do say y'all and eat grits. I grew up in western Kansas amid horizon-wide fields of wheat and countless clusters of grazing cattle scattered across seemingly endless acres of slightly undulating plains. One of my most famous things to have ever written is a contribution to a collection of essays entitled 150 Years of Kansas Beef. My chapter, Cowboys, Cow Towns, and Cattle Trails of Kansas, a little bit of Cramnerian alliteration for the Wild West. Why did I explore something so far afield for my academic interest in the English Reformation? Frankly, I wanted to write something my family would read. I think it's fairly accurate to say I grew up in rural America. Yet in all my years in Kansas, I never saw a horse pushing a cart. Pulling, yes, but never pushing, never, not even once. After all, a horse's head is not really designed to efficiently push a cart, but its body is so effective at pulling that even after human society made the transition from work animals to machines, we still refer to the energy required to move things in units of horsepower. However, when it comes to Christianity, the horse and the cart, we always seem to mix that up. Let me explain. One of the most basic principles in Christianity to get right is which comes first, the horse or the cart. Do we initiate and God responds? Or does God initiate and we respond? Do we take a step toward God and consequently he takes a step towards us? Or does God come to us, embrace us, hugging us tight with his love so that we find ourselves instinctively drawn to put our arms around him in return? Do we find him drawing out of us the desire, the action to receive the fullness of the love which he's imparting to us? Or, rather, do we try to do something in between these two diametrically opposite approaches? Do we start with the horse, but then switch to the cart? 
Are we saved by Christ's gift on the cross, but afterwards expect to be sanctified by our own efforts? We are rescued by God from the consequences of our poor, poor decisions. But the next time we find ourselves in a jam, it's up to us to get ourselves out of it. Do we think that the better we are, the more God loves us? That the more we are, the, more, the better we are, the more that he will bless us. Are we saved by grace, but sustained by our own sweat? Or do we keep the horse in front of the cart from the beginning of our Christian lives to its consummation in the age to come? Do we finish as well as we started? Or do we change the horse's position in midstream? It's an important question, and the question that the gospel today confronts us with. Ten leopards started well. but only one finished well. Let's take a closer look. Jesus is traveling in the land between uh, Galilee and Samaria. Galilee is inhabited by uh, pious Jews. Samaritans are the result of the mixed breeding between people that the Assyrians brought in after they conquered the northern kingdom in 721 and those people who came in and settled intermarried and mixed up their religious ideas with the ancient teachings of, uh, of Yahweh and now they claim to be teaching the right way to worship God and of course for pious Jews that's blasphemy what they do that they're worse than sinning Jews they're worse than pagan Romans and Greeks they are the worst of all possible people because they claim to be following uh, Yahweh but it's, it's nothing close now remember for Jesus the, he confronts Pharisees, and the Pharisees have to stay away from impure people because their impurity, if it touches the Pharisees, make the Pharisees impure. But Jesus is the exact opposite. When he touches impure people, what happens? His purity makes the impure pure. Pious Jews shouldn't be in Samarita, Samaria, lest they get made impure. But that's not Jesus. And he's coming in to this border area, and before he gets to a village, ten lepers cry out to him. Why do they cry out to him before he gets in the village? Because they're in the, they can't go in the village. They have to constantly... 
uh, according to Leviticus 13, the person with an infectious disease must wear torn clothes. Let his hair be unkempt. Cover the lower part of his face and cry out, unclean, unclean. Stay away from me because I'm unclean. As long as he has the infection, he remains unclean. He must live alone. He must live outside the camp. They can't work. They can't till the field. They can only beg. And so these lepers do what they always do. They greet this new group. They greet Jesus and say, have mercy. Have pity. And they wait to see what he will do. Will he give them money? Will he give them food? What form will his mercy take? Now, we would expect that he would, you know, say something like be healed, right? Or touch them. Or That's not what Jesus does. He gives them a command just says, go show yourself to the priests. Why would Jesus want them to show themselves to the priest? The only way a leper can be reintegrated into the community under the Mosaic law is to have a priest declare that they're no longer unclean, that they've been healed. When Jesus says, go show yourself to the priest, he implies, but neither says nor does change their situation. But he gives them hope. Have you ever known someone who's only known constant disappointment heartache, despair, problem, a problem, constantly feeling rejected by those around them, constantly rejecting themselves because of that? Have you ever been at that place in your own life where you have been without hope? for something different, for relief, for resolution, for a way out. In the midst of our struggles and problems, what Edna St. Vincent Millay said sums it up. It's not one thing after another. It's the same cursed thing over and over. If you have known someone with that kind of struggles, if you have ever been there yourself, then the hardest thing to have is hope. How did Jesus do it? Was it that his reputation preceded him? Or was it his demeanor was it the efficacious power of his word that when he spoke to them, something in them came alive? 
But whatever it was, they had hope for the first time in how long. And they started well. All ten of them go on their way to the priest. No one says it. And they didn't ask Jesus for it. Because if you've been downtrodden so long, you dare to hope for something better, right? And they go. And while they're on the way, it happens. They are cleansed. They are healed. Their unspoken prayer has been answered. But only one comes back to praise Jesus. And the one who is the most despised and the one whose religious background should be the least able to get right who Jesus is. He recognizes that this is the one they have been waiting for. That God is acting uniquely through Jesus. After all, what does Jesus tell the followers of John? Go back and report to John what you have seen and heard. The lepers are cleansed. He comes back. Now, Jesus says something really weird. Did you notice that? In verse 19. Sorry, I, yeah. Rise and go. Your faith has made you well. What is Jesus on about? The man has already received his physical healing. Jesus must be referring to a different healing. A healing of his soul. A healing of that soul sickness that thinks we really can't rely on anyone else, not even God. That's how we got hurt in the first place. Once we've been touched by Jesus, don't we think we can take it from there? Even if we need to start with grace, we can only trust our own efforts to get us where we want to end up. If you have felt like an outcast, if you have struggled with circumstances that seem to be strangling your life and hope, and the devil is always there to whisper in your ear and say, if there were a God who loved you, surely he would have given you a better deal than this. Have you ever noticed when someone goes from being rejected to accept it. I see this often with elite athletes. They still have this mentality that they're outsiders, still afraid if they don't push, they'll be put down. 
Why didn't the other nine return? The Bible doesn't say. Maybe they were just so excited about all the things they were going to do. They didn't think about the giver anymore. They just thought about the gift. Or maybe they couldn't leave behind that fear that if they didn't control the situation, if they didn't depend upon themselves as they had done for all those years as an outcast, that fear strangled up gratitude and they weren't able to focus on Jesus, just on themselves. It's easy to condemn them because all too often we're like them. <laughs> Have you noticed that every gift of God is the, is the basis of our future rebellion against him? Now that we have that, we can get on with it. We don't need to rely or lean on him. And therefore, when we find ourselves in a jam again, we strangle our possibilities by collapsing on what we can hold in our own hand. That became clear to me when I was a seven-year-old boy in Kansas. We're at the pool. I'm scared to death of the deep end, but I have a kind older brother who wants to help me get over this. So he gives me a kickboard. And we together, me with the kickboard and him swimming beside, we go from the shallow end to the nine-foot deep end to show me that there's nothing to be afraid of. But the seven-foot area comes and I panic. So I take matters into my own hands. I have started well, but all of a sudden I'm afraid it's not going to end well. So what do I do? I climb on my kickboard. Do you know what happens when you put pressure on a kickboard down on the lower end? It becomes a projectile and it goes way away, five feet away. And now, because of my efforts to solve my fear and my own strength, it's just gotten worse. I'm out there all alone struggling. So I go to plan B. What do you suppose plan B is? My brother, he seems to be floating. So I grab my brother with all my might because I want to hold on to life. My brother, and I go down once. He kicks back up. We go down twice. He kicks back up. And he says, if you don't let go, we're both going to drown. Now, that doesn't sound very reassuring, does it? But instantly, I let go. Why? Because I knew if my brother was alive, he would do everything. to make sure I would be too. The minute I let go of him, he went to the lifeguard, the teenage boy who was literally only five feet away from us. But it's in the middle of free swim and he thinks and it's hugely packed and he thinks we're just playing. He has no idea that we're struggling for our lives. 
And within a minute, I'm up and I'm safe and I'm sound. Where are we strangling the goodness of God by holding on to what he has given us rather than trusting him to be the answer, the solution, to let go of trying to fix what we can't fix and to watch him do in and for us what only he can do. Jesus is alive. Jesus is reigning now. He will never let us down. He will bring us through every difficulty. He will make Philippians 1.6 true for us. He who has began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Christ Jesus. Wherever you may be struggling, wherever those you love may be struggling, let us ask the Holy Spirit to write in our hearts what we sang today. Praise to the Lord who doth prosper thy way and defend thee. Surely his goodness and mercy shall ever attend thee. What do we do when we don't know the answer and our hope for something better is diminishing and we're starting to fall back to rely on ourselves because we don't trust his love? Ponder anew. What the Almighty can do who with his love doth Amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.